Warning. The following program contains the testimony of real Christians experiencing trials and tribulations. It could change your life. Welcome to the Firefly Report, showing how God works in people's lives. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 23 of the Firefly Report. We feel this is the only place that you can find in-depth reporting with real Christian people with real-life stories discussing how God is working in their lives. We broadcast each and every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at thefireflyreport.com. And you can download all of our shows for free on iTunes. I want to thank everyone for joining us on this show tonight. I hope everyone had a wonderful week. For those of you that did get a chance to read the Newsweek article, The Bible, So Misunderstood It's a Sin, I hope that you were able to read it without your blood pressure going through the roof. I know that was difficult for me. But I hope if you did read it that it gave you a greater understanding of just where we are today as a society and what the attitudes are today as a society revolving around Christianity and the demonization of Christianity. Tonight's episode kind of follows in that same vein. Tonight I wanted to read to you a rebuttal written by the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, Dr. Albert Moeller Jr., because I felt it was necessary for you to hear someone educated in the field of theology respond to the hit piece on Christianity that we discussed last week. But also tonight, I want to discuss what we all witnessed happen in Paris, along with what we didn't witness happen, along with the events in Paris. And hopefully through the analysis tonight, you'll be able to see that there's some serious questions that need to be raised about the direction that our country's heading, the direction that the world's heading, and the bizarre attitudes regarding radical extremism of the Islamic faith and attitudes towards law-abiding Christians. And I titled tonight's episode, The Stage is Set, because I believe the world is currently teetering on the verge of chaos. Some would argue that we're already experiencing that chaos. But amidst all this chaos, as we saw in Paris yesterday with the March of Solidarity, by all the world leaders and the citizens of France, Jews and atheists and liberals and Christians and, and Muslims and people of other faiths coming together in unity to denounce the actions of the terrorists this past week in Paris. And as we take a look at those events, we can see that the stage truly has been set for someone to come on the scene and attempt to fix the problems that we're all experiencing. But the question is, where is that fix going to come from? Who can we trust in today's modern age to fix those problems from a worldly perspective? And that's what I want to take a look at tonight, because 
truthfully, there's no one that can come on the scene. There's no politician that can come on the scene and put this genie back in the bottle. There's too many polarizing, contradicting views from both sides of the aisle with regards to the subject matter that the events took place over in Paris. Jesus Christ is the only answer, but when he returns, it's going to be for judgment. It'll be too late for those that have rejected him. So with that being said, think about those points as you sit back and relax and enjoy episode 23, The Stage is Set. Dr. Albert Moeller Jr., president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, wrote a nice rebuttal to the article we discussed last week during episode 22 of the Firefly Report. So tonight I would like to read that rebuttal, and it's entitled Newsweek on the Bible, So Misrepresented It's a Sin. This was written on Monday, December 29th, 2014, and you can find this article at www. Albertmoller.com. Newsweek magazine decided to greet the start of 2015 with a massive cover story on the Bible. For decades now, major news magazines have tended to feature cover articles time for Christmas and Easter, taking an opportunity to consider some major questions about Christianity and the modern world. Leading the journalistic pack for years, both Time and Newsweek dedicated cover article after article following a rather predictable format. In the main, scholars or leaders from very liberal quarters commented side-by-side side those committed to historic Christianity on questions ranging from the virgin birth to the resurrection of Christ. When written by journalists like Newsweek's former editor John Meacham or Time reporters such as David Van Biema, the articles were often balanced and genuinely insightful. Meacham and Van Biema knew the difference between theological liberals and theological conservatives, and they were determined to let both sides speak. I was interviewed several times by both writers, along with others from both magazines. I may not have liked the final version of the article in some cases, but I was treated fairly and with journalistic integrity. So, when Newsweek, now back in print under new ownership, let loose its first issue of the New Year on the Bible, I held out the hope that the article would be fair, journalistically credible, and interesting, even if written from a more liberal perspective. But Newsweek's cover story is nothing of the sort. It is an irresponsible screed of post-Christian invective leveled against the Bible and, even more to the point, against evangelical Christianity. It is one of the most irresponsible articles ever to appear in a journalistic guise. The author of the massive essay is Kurt Eichenwald, who boasts an impressive reputation as a writer and reporter for newspapers like the New York Times and magazines including Vanity Fair. A two-time winner of the George Polk Award, he was also a finalist for a Pulitzer Prize. Eichenwald, however, has been primarily known for reporting and writing in a very different area of expertise. Most of his writing has been on business and financial matters, including business scandals. When it comes to Newsweek's cover story, the Bible so misunderstood it's a sin, Eichenwald appears to be far outside his area of expertise and knowledge. More to the point, he really does not address the subject of the Bible like a reporter at all. His article is a hit piece that lacks any journalistic balance or credibility. His only sources cited within the article are from severe critics of evangelical Christianity, and he does not even represent some of them accurately. The opening two paragraphs of the article sets the stage for what follows. They wave their Bibles at passers-by, screaming their condemnations of homosexuals, 
They fall on their knees, worshipping at the base of granite monuments to the Ten Commandments while demanding prayer in school. They appeal to God to save America from their political opponents, mostly Democrats. They gather in football stadiums by the thousands to pray for the country's salvation. They are God's frauds, cafeteria Christians who pick and choose which Bible verses they heed with less care than they exercise in selecting side orders for lunch. They are joined by religious rationalizers, fundamentalists who, unable to find scripture supporting their biases and beliefs, twist phrases and modify translations to prove that they are honoring the Bible's words. What's really going on here? Did some fundamentalist preacher run over young Kurt Eichenwald's pet hamster when the reporter was just a boy? He opens with the most crude caricature of evangelical Christians, one unrecognizable in the vast majority of evangelical churches, and even to credible journalists. But the opening lines are truly a foretaste of what follows. Amazingly, Eichenwald claims some stance of objectivity. Newsweek's exploration here of the Bible's history and meaning is not intended to advance a particular theology or debate the existence of God, Eichenwald insists. Rather, it is designed to shine a light on a book that has been abused by people who claim to revere it but don't read it, in the process of creating misery for others. But Eichenwald demonstrates absolutely no attempt to understand traditional Christian understandings of the Bible, nor ever to have spoken with the people he asserts. Claim to revere the Bible, but don't read it. What follows is a reckless rant against the Bible and Christians who claim to base their faith upon its teachings. In a predictable move, Eichenwald claims to base his research on works of scores of theologians and scholars, some of which dates back centuries. But the sources he cites are from the far, far left of biblical studies, and the most significant living source appears to be the University of North Carolina professor Bart Ehrman, who is post-Christian. Even so, he makes claims that go far beyond even what Bart Ehrman has claimed in print. Eichenwald's first claim is that we cannot really read the Bible, for it does not actually exist and never has. No television preacher has ever read the Bible, he asserts. Neither has any evangelical politician. Neither has the Pope. Neither have I, and neither have you. At best, we've all read a bad translation. A translation of translations of translations, of hand-copied copies of copies of copies of copies, and on and on hundreds of times. No knowledgeable evangelical claims that the Bibles we read in English are anything other than translations. But it is just wrong and reckless to claim that today's best translations are merely a translation of translations of translations. That just isn't so, not even close. Eichenwald writes as if textual criticism is a recent development and as if Christian scholars have not been practicing it for centuries. He also grossly exaggerates the time between the writing of the New Testament documents and the establishment of a functional canon. He tells of the process of copying manuscripts by hand over centuries as if it seals some argument about textual reliability, wrongly suggesting that many, if not most, of the ancient Christian scribes were illiterate. He writes accurately of the Greek used in the New Testament, and then makes an argument that could only impress a ten-year-old. These manuscripts were originally written in Kony or common Greek, and not all of the amateur copyists spoke the language or were even fully literate. Some copied the script without understanding the words, and Coney was written in what is known as scriptio continua, meaning no spaces between the words and no punctuation. So, a sentence like, we should go eat mom, could be interpreted as, we should go eat mom, or we should go eat mom. 
Sentences can have different meaning depending on where the spaces are placed. For example, God is nowhere could be God is now here or God is nowhere. Isn't that clever? But there is no text in the Bible in which this is truly a problem. Context determines the meaning, and no mom is in danger of being eaten due to confused punctuation. That might impress a fifth grade class, but not any serious reader. Later in his essay, he makes essentially the same argument when he deals with the Greek word translated as worship when the text refers to deity. He rightly points out that the translators use other terms when the context is merely human. Yes, the same word is used, but not in the same sense. This is not a translator's sleight of hand, but common sense. Similarly, when a British nobleman is addressed as your lordship in public, this does not mean that he is being worshipped in the same sense as when a Christian speaks of the lordship of Christ. Common sense indicates that the same word has a different meaning in a different context. Eichenwald grossly overestimates the total number of ancient New Testament manuscripts, and he seems to believe that mainstream Christianity in the patristic era might have been seriously confused about the legitimacy of the so-called Gnostic Gospels and other heretical writings. He cited Bart Ehrman as saying, There are more variations among our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. But then he follows that with his own concession. Most of those discrepancies are little more than the handwritten equivalent of a typo, but that error was then included by future scribes. So there are many variations, but most are little more than a handwritten equivalent of a typo? Then why is this point even important? He turns to text-critical questions related to the long ending of Mark's Gospel, chapter 16, verses 17 through 18, and the account of Jesus and the woman called in adultery in John's Gospel. These questions would not trouble any first-year seminarian in an evangelical seminary, but they are presented in the article as blockbuster discoveries. Furthermore, with reference to the woman caught in adultery, Eichenwald states, Unfortunately, John didn't write it. Scribes made it up sometime in the Middle Ages. But the fact that the account is not found in the older manuscripts of the Gospel of John does not mean, in any credible sense, that scribes simply made it up in the Middle Ages. Eichenwald seems unaware of the very category of oral tradition. He also presents a twisted version of Emperor Constantine's influence in Christian history getting right the fact that Constantine called and influenced the Council of Nicaea, but getting facts wrong when he claimed that Constantine influenced the formation of the New Testament canon by determining which books were to be included. His accusation of political intrigue by Constantine on the question of Christ's deity appears within the totality of Eichenwald's essay as a pointer to a strange antipathy to the doctrine of the Trinity itself. He argues that the Trinity is never defined in a singular verse of Scripture. Orthodox Christians do not claim that any single text does, but he ignores the development of the doctrine of the Trinity drawn from the totality of the New Testament itself. Eichenwald's opening sentences trumpeted his disdain for evangelical Christianity's sexual ethic, and his essay turns to deny that Christians have any textual basis for a negative view of homosexuality. He dismisses 1 Timothy as being falsely claimed to be written by the Apostle Paul, citing, oddly enough, Friedrich Schleiermacher, the father of modern theological liberalism, who made the argument in 1807. There is no counter-argument offered. Eichenwald simply credits the scholars he cites without any admission that other scholars hold very different opinions. Interestingly, 
he appears unable to deny that Paul wrote Romans and that Romans 1.27 identifies men lusting after other men as sinful. He seems to believe that the teachings about women teaching and leading in 1 Timothy would apply to a woman in political office, failing to read that the text is clearly speaking of order within the Christian assembly. He seems totally unaware of any distinction between the moral law in the Old Testament and the ceremonial law and the holiness code. In the main, he argues that historic Christianity has been based on nothing but a lie and that those who now represent themselves as biblical Christians are lying to themselves and to others and doing great harm in the process. But Kurt Eichenwald's essay is not groundbreaking in any sense. These arguments have been around for centuries in some form. He mixes serious points of argument with caricatures and cartoons and he does exactly what he accuses Christians of doing. He picks his facts and arguments for deliberate effect. Newsweek's cover story is exactly what happens when a writer fueled by open antipathy to evangelical Christianity tries to throw every argument he can think of against the Bible and its authority. To put the matter plainly, no honest historian would recognize the portrait of Christian history presented in this essay as accurate and no credible journalist would recognize this screed as balance. Oddly enough, Kurt Eichenwald's attack on evangelical Christianity would likely be a measure more effective had he left out the personal invective that opens his essay and appears pervasively. He has an axe to grind, and grind he does. But the authority of the Bible is not the victim of the grinding. To the contrary, this article is likely to do far more damage to Newsweek in its sad new reality. Kurt Eichenwald probably has little to lose among his friends at Vanity Fair, but this article is nothing less than an embarrassment. To take advantage of Newsweek's title, it so misrepresents the truth, it's a sin. I feel that Dr. Moeller Jr. did a brilliant job of pointing out the errors and the logic and the deceptive means by which the author of this Newsweek article used to misrepresent the Bible and Christianity in general. Ironically enough, in an article, article that's meant to explain to the rest of us how we misunderstand the Bible. And as we look at the context of last week's episode and the beginning of this week's episode, I feel that it sets the stage for discussion of what happened in France this week and what's going on in the world at large with regards to Islamic extremism. As we all know, last week in Paris, over the course of a few days and multiple events in multiple locations, 17 people were killed at the hands of Islamic extremists. And just yesterday, many of the world's leaders came together in Paris in unity and a display of solidarity as they all came together and marched with arms interlocking to display to the world that we must unite against Islamic extremism. And while I feel that that's necessary, and I'm sure others feel the same, that we all must unite against any religion that has a mantra of convert or die. I think we must also point out some red flags and some questions of concern with regards to these events. For example, 17 individuals die in France and the whole world stops and marchers and protesters and politicians unite and turn to the streets to march in solidarity. Meanwhile, 
and I'm sure this will be news to many of you who haven't heard this in the mainstream media, but in the African country of Nigeria, over the same course of a few days, 16 villages have been attacked by the Islamic extremist group of Boko Haram, and it's estimated that 2,000 civilians have been killed by these attacks. The targets of these attacks were police, schools, churches, and government buildings. And the reason for the attacks is they are wanting to impose stricter Sharia law upon these citizens in Nigeria. In other words, if you don't convert to our form of Islam, if you don't submit to our form of Islam, then we're going to kill you. But where's the outrage from the world about what's happening in Nigeria? Why was the outrage only displayed in France? And not only that, another thing that struck me as odd, why was the Palestinian Authority, Mr. Abbas, marching with those leaders in France when the whole world knows that he's the head of one of the most terrorist states in the world, Palestine, with their continued support of Hamas in attacking Israel. It was just very bizarre occurrences. And then you throw in the fact that America didn't send any high-ranking political representatives to this march of solidarity and condemnation of extreme Islam. Isn't it interesting that while Al-Qaeda, ISIS, Boko Haram, Hamas, Hezbollah, they're all on the rise while our government refuses to acknowledge the issue of Islamic extremism. I ask you one simple question. Why? France is the biggest example of the failure to appease radical extremists. You see, France has some of the strictest gun laws of any European nation. They also have one of the greatest open borders policy of any European nation. And they had what was called no-go zones for people in the Islamic community. And for those of you that don't know, the Islamic community makes up approximately 10% of the population of the people of France. But a no-go zone was an area of the population to where French authorities were not allowed to go. French authorities and the, and the governmental rule of the French authorities is not allowed to be exercised in those no-go zones. In other words, there are many caliphates of town-like groups of people of the Islamic faith within the country of France. And sure enough, that is where these extremists were spawned from. And that's how they were able to catch the authorities of France completely off guard. So when we hear our own officials not wanting to decry the fact that radical Islamic supporters are a problem, when we want to hear our government state that the problem is not Islam, when we want to hear our government start pointing the fingers at Christians as being the extremist groups, and Christians and their lack of support for the homosexual agenda, or for the abortion agenda, or for the atheistic agenda, then that should be a cause for concern and raise red flags in all of our minds. Why are we supportive? And by supportive, I mean when we do nothing, when we sit back and let the world burn, when we sit back 
and let extremists run the world, watching innocent Christians die overseas and do nothing, we become an accomplice to those extremists. And that's a scary place for us all to be. But if we truly open our eyes and look around, is that not what's happening in the world around us today? All those radical Islamic extremist groups that I mentioned are on the rise, and we seem to be turning a deaf ear and a blind eye to it. Where's our willpower to fight? Where's the Christian principles that this country was founded upon? Why is our government not standing behind those principles? Why does it seem like we're doing all we possibly can to denounce and reduce those principles to legalism? We're living in interesting times. We're living in times where most of us who were in a daily walk with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ realize that the days are drawing closer and closer to the return of Jesus Christ. And if we truly believe that, if we truly accept that, then all of this craziness that's happening happening in the world today is not a surprise to us. I don't know what the future holds for this country, but I do know that the things that we're seeing with Islamic extremism, they're not going away anytime soon. In fact, they're going to increase and it's going to get worse because the Bible says so. In fact, I'd like to read to you from the book of Daniel. I'd like to tell you how the story ends from the prophet's point of view. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Daniel chapter 11. And we're going to start in verse 40. And we're going to read all the way through the end of, verse, of, the end of chapter 11. And we're going to read the entire chapter 12 also. But as we read this prophetic scripture from the prophet Daniel, I want you in your mind to think about what's going on in the world around you today. And I want you to picture how everything is going to culminate with an antichrist figure sacking the city of Jerusalem, going on the rampage, and persecuting the saints for an extended period of time because God allows it until he meets his demise at the return of Jesus Christ. So if you would, grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Daniel, chapter 11, and we'll start in verse 40. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind, with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships, and he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. He shall also enter the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver, and over all the precious things of Egypt. Also, the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. But news from the east and the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end, and no one will help him. At that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. 
those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there stood two others, one on this riverbank and the other on that riverbank. And one said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, How long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? Then I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven, and swore by him who lives forever and ever, that it shall be for a time, times, and half a time. And when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. Although I heard, I did not understand. Then I said, My Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Many shall be purified, made white, and refined. But the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away, and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. But you go, go your way till the end, for you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of the days. A couple points from that passage that we just read. First, I want you to take note that the time of trouble comes first to refine the saints. Perhaps many of you listening to this show and episode tonight are going through trials and tribulations in your own personal life. The book of Daniel just told you that the trials and tribulations that you're going through in your life were to refine you, were to draw you closer to Jesus. Because when we face those trials and tribulations in our life, we have two choices. We can become angry at God, we can turn our back on God, we can chastise God, or we can draw closer to God, trust in God, accept the tribulation that is bestowed upon us, and grow in Him, in our trust of Him, and in our walk with Him. Because that's what they're all about. The world in which we live in today wants us to believe that a loving God would not cause pain and suffering in His children's lives. But the truth is just the opposite. You just heard from the prophet Daniel that in the last days, the Antichrist will be granted power over the saints to defeat them. And many, when this takes place in the last days, will depart from the faith because they don't have that strong, fundamental relationship with Jesus Christ. But those that can endure, those that can turn to Christ in their tribulation, will be refined and will be rewarded when Christ returns, they'll gain their inheritance in the kingdom of heaven. So remember, the time of trouble comes first. And that time of trouble is necessary to refine us in our walk with the Lord. The second point I want to make from this text is that the wicked were oblivious to what was going on. I often think to the words of Jesus in the book of Matthew, when the disciples were pressuring him about letting them know about when the times of the end would be. And what did Jesus say? He said it would be as in the days of Noah, that people would be eating, drinking, and giving in marriage. It will be just like any other time to them. 
They won't see the signs. They won't know what's going on. Think back to the time of Noah. They were mocking Noah, making fun of him. They thought he was some idiot building a giant boat to a God that didn't exist, for a God that didn't exist. Because at that moment in time, it hadn't rained yet. There wasn't anything to fear. Parallel that to today's times, to where there's plenty of people walking around today, doing their best to walk with Jesus Christ daily, getting sin out of their lives to further that walk with Jesus Christ. And those people have a sense that we're living in a period of time where Jesus could come back at any moment. But contrast that to the naysayers. Contrast that to the people that are mocking Christians right now. The atheists of the world. Like the gentleman that just wrote the article in Newsweek. They mock us. They think we're a joke. Once again, they fit the bill for the people in this prophecy from the book of Daniel. In Daniel 12. The wicked would continually do wicked and would not notice what's going on around them in the last days. That's point number two. The final point is because evil will prosper in these last days. Because the Antichrist will have power to overcome the saints. Many are going to lose hope in Jesus. But we must stay the course. Because when all hope seems lost... It's at that moment that Jesus Christ returns. It's at that moment when the Antichrist thinks he's won, when those doing wicked think they've won, that Jesus returns and sets a few things right in the world. And you may say, well, well that doesn't give me comfort knowing that trials and tribulations await us in this life. That's not my determination to make. I, I don't say that. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says that the Antichrist will be granted the power to overcome the saints. That's not my words. That's the prophet's words. That's the Bible's words. And for those that feel that because God is love, that he would never allow his children to experience heartache, I would say look around. The problem of evil exists. What about children that die of cancer? What about children that are kidnapped and killed or molested? What about family members that perish in a car accident, that had a lot to live for, that were good people? What about Jesus Christ, who never even sinned, who gave his life for you and me? What about the apostles and the miserable, agonizing deaths that they endured because of their love for Christ? What about John the Baptist? He lost his head simply because some floozy queen wanted it on a platter and a drunk king couldn't keep his mouth shut. The man spent his whole life dedicated to preparing the way for the Messiah, for Jesus Christ, and he gets his head chopped off in a prison because of some loose statements by a king and the evil wishes of a queen. My point in saying that is, the mystery of God cannot be understood by our finite human minds. It might be emotionally comforting to us to think that God would never allow evil upon his followers' lives. But if we truly read our scriptures, if we truly pay attention to the words of Jesus and to the teachings of the apostles, we learn quickly that God uses trials and tribulations in our lives to draw us closer to him. And the reason for that is because this life on earth is just a speck on eternity. It's just a blip on the radar 
a flash in the pan. What we do on this earth ultimately determines our rewards in heaven. Who we are, who we witness to, what we do here sets the tone for what we will be with regards to service in heaven. Think of it like tryouts. You might know all the rules in the sport of your choice. You might know the history of the sport of your choice. But unless you go out and can perform at the best of your ability, better than a fellow competitor who wants to be a member of a team, you're not going to get that spot. So it goes in the Christian life. We should all strive for the prize of the utmost service for our Lord and Savior. What are you doing with your life today that is pleasing to the Lord? Who are you winning to Christ? What kind of example are you setting for your children? What kind of example are you setting for your family members outside of your immediate family? What are you doing with your free time to serve the Lord? Time's running out. Evil's growing. What's happening in Paris could easily start happening in America tomorrow. Because who's going to stop it? Is America going to stop it? What have we done or said that indicates that we care anything about quelling the rise of Islamic extremism in the world? What have we done or said? Yeah, we, we dropped a few bombs on some trucks in Syria and Iraq. We're the most powerful military force the world has ever seen. And we can't stop the uprisings of people from third world countries using swords to chop people's heads off. Think about that, folks. And ask yourself the question, why? As we approach the end of days, time is going to seem to speed up. And before you know it, the world's going to be in complete chaos. Where's your heart going to be when that happens? Are you going to be angry that the life you loved has changed? That the country you love has changed? That your quality of life has changed? Or are you going to get yourself right with the Lord and start doing what really matters in life? Winning souls for Jesus Christ. The choice is up to you. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope the content of tonight's episode has helped enlighten you with regards to world events, with regards to prophecy, with regards to idealistic views as to what we want to believe about the future in comparison to what the Bible says is going to happen in the future. I think sometimes it's easy, easy for us to want to relegate God to just a God of love, and he is a God of love. He demonstrated the most selfless act of sacrifice in coming to earth in human form and dying for us, for our sins, not his sins, our sins. And then that was the greatest display of love that mankind could ever witness. But unfortunately, that's not where the story ends. Because while he came in love, he's coming back in judgment. And it's important for all of us as Christians, to prepare for his return. It's one thing to accept Jesus Christ into your heart. It's another thing to spend the rest of your life living for him, in a relationship with him. 
So the point of tonight's episode is that the world's going to get worse before it gets better. In fact, if we're close to the end, if this is the end in the coming years, then it's not going to get better. But as it gets worse, if that turns out to be the case, as it gets worse, we must turn back to God. We must trust in Him. We must repent and draw closer to Him through the chaos, through the turmoil, through the persecution, through the death, through the loss of everything material that we had put our hope and trust in. Because that's the only way we're going to be able to keep our sanity. That's the only way we're going to be able to make a difference. Because when Jesus returns, he doesn't care how much prestige or money that you had. He doesn't care how many houses you had. What he does care about is how many souls you won for him. What did you do for him to increase his kingdom? What did you do for him to sacrifice your own wants and needs for him? But another important thing to take from tonight is inside we all have a concept of how things are going to look like when the things of the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel transpire on earth. What if those concepts are completely wrong? What if everything that we've been taught, that we believe with all our heart, that's not necessarily scriptural based, what if all those things turn out to be false? Because when the end comes, the only thing we can trust is that which was in scripture, which is spelled out in red and black ink in scripture. And instead of fighting one another, on whether there's a pre-tribulation rapture or a post-tribulation rapture, what we need to be teaching one another is be ready for either because the Antichrist might not come on the scene like we think he's going to come on the scene. Folks, what if he's already here? What if he's already reigning? Have you ever thought about that? Look around. As the title of this episode states, the stage is set for that individual to come on the scene to attempt to fix or to attempt to propagate the radical Muslim lie. But don't be like the wicked and not see it coming. Don't be like the wicked and be oblivious to the reality of the approaching demise of mankind. Hold on to your relationship with Jesus Christ. Stay focused on him. Trust in him. But most importantly, win others to him. Thank you for listening tonight. Good night, and God bless. If you would like more information on how you can share your testimony on The Firefly Report, visit www.thefireflyreport.com and click on the link entitled, Share My Testimony. We would love to hear from you and talk with you about how God's working in your life.